You may be seated. Luke chapter 15, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament and to Luke chapter 15. going through the Gospel of Luke here, have been for since January 2019, and making our way through this Gospel, the longest of the Gospels. So I'm, I'm not sure where I am in terms of messages. It took me 117 to get through the Gospel of John. I'm probably in and around there now, and I'm chapter 15 of Luke. Uh, but we're getting there, and we trust that it is with profit. We're going to read from verse 1. We looked at the opening two verses last Lord's Day. Christ, the perfect evangelist. But we move a little further now, and we'll read through to verse 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Amen. May God write his word on our hearts, and may we give heed to it this evening. Let's pray. Lord, again, we look to Thee for help. We sing these great themes, and they fill our hearts with joy when we meditate upon the great redemptive activity of our God. We have benefited so richly. We continue to benefit, and we will for all eternity benefit from what Christ has done. We get to sing themes that are sounded out in glory, and we are thankful for the preparation here on earth before we join with the perfected saints in glory. God bless us here. Encourage your hearts. Feed thy sheep and thy lambs, and should there be any here without Christ this evening, save them by thy grace. Oh, Lord, Give help to this preacher. We plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have established on a number of occasions here and there, as I have preached to you, that there is such a thing as sinners that are worse than 
other sinners. There's degrees of sin. There are some that are worse than others. The fact that this is true, of course, bothers some people, but it's established in Scripture, and I'll not do what I've done in the past again. But this fact was a hindrance to the Pharisees in the fact that, as they understood this, that there's a different degree of sinfulness in men, it brought them to measure their performance against others and then conclude something about themselves, specifically that they're not sinners. Now, in doing so, they do something that is catastrophic to the soul. They place themselves in a position where they cannot be saved. No one, no one can be saved who denies, to use a word, sinnership, denies their sinnership before God. If you deny the fact that you're a sinner, and let me be specific, because many men have no problem saying we're all sinners. Where they stumble is getting honest about themselves and saying, I am a sinner. They get stuck there. They don't want to acknowledge that they are sinners. And if you're in such a place, you, you can't be saved while you retain that position. The Pharisees were incapable of experiencing salvation while they held on to this notion that in terms of degree of sinfulness, there are others more sinful than us, and we're in a position where we are not sinners. Now, that is not what the Scripture teaches. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. While some may be more grievous, engage in more grievous sin, all are equal in terms of this fact. All are sinful. All are sinners. As we know last week, the Lord Jesus is the perfect evangelist. It is his desire to go after souls. And even amidst discouragement and the murmuring and the accusations of his enemies, verse 2, he continues. He proceeds through his life and ministry to go after the souls of men. This morning we made mention of the doctrine of divine impassibility and I made some passing remarks in relation to that and some comments, and I was arguing that from the Scriptures you can, you can see that there, there, there cannot be the kind of idea that emo there's emotions in God like there is in us. Now, now, one kind of caveat to that, when you read about God being angry or God grieving or something of that nature, and I, I say to you that that reflects divine activity, he doesn't experience emotions. He isn't reacting the way you react to circumstances and therefore is in a constant state of flux and change. That cannot be, about, cannot be true about an immutable God, a God who doesn't change. However, there is language in Scripture that we might determine emotional language that is accepted. And I speak specifically of, of love. Love is distinct. And there may be others. I think you, you could put some others in there as well, but certainly you can say it's true of love. When the Bible speaks of God's love, it doesn't have to be categorized like God's anger or other aspects that are reflecting language to help us see God's activity towards men and their sin. Because love is distinct. Love is not something God has. Love is something God is. The divine nature is love. We think of God, you cannot think of Him without 
love. And there's lots going on there, but in relation to that fact then, when it says God is love or speaks of, of God's love, you're not, you're not always seeing something that is God's activity toward men. You're seeing something that is true about God eternally. I hope that's clear, just to add in a little distinction from what I said this morning and perhaps a little caveat with regard to the language of Scripture relating to God. We know that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and therefore we see that that is in, that is, that's, I was about to say that is part of God, even that language. <laughs> even to say that love is a part of God is an attack against divine simplicity. So I'm not going to sidetrack into that. But God is love. His nature is love. Not that love is part of God. God is love. All love. Perfect love. And this passage of God's Word, Luke chapter 15, puts on display that love when it is incarnate. When love takes humanity, what will it do? What will love do when it takes humanity? It pursues sinners. And Luke chapter 15 is one of the most glorious portions of all Scripture. I, I think that can be said without hesitation. It's difficult when you look at God's Word and you say, this is more elevated than that. We don't mean that in the sense that some are as, as of more importance than others. But there are certain portions that have richness to them that set them apart. I made mention of the fact God's favorite verse is Psalm 110 verse 1 because he quotes it more than anything else that we find in Scripture. There are portions that are more relevant or portions that are crucial in building a picture of who God is and what He is doing. And Luke 15 is, is one of those portions that I imagine have touched as many, maybe more lives than, than any other portion of Scripture, possibly. In verse 3, we are told, He spake this parable unto them. Who's this to? Well, I think everyone's involved, but it's specifically, I think, the, the Pharisees and scribes that are murmuring. The ones who find fault in him because he receives sinners and eats with them. When they, when they see him fellowshipping with these, these, the lowest of the low, the worst of society, those that are in the dregs of the community, he speaks a parable. And men have argued, is this one parable? Is it three parables? And I think there's an argument that it's one parable with three different aspects that come together. In fact, there's a lot of overlap in what we have here as it deals with the lost sheep. And just for alliteration, you can talk about the lost silver and the lost son. There's a lot of overlap, but there's a distinction too. And I, I, was, I was struck, and I'm obviously, like you, I'm familiar with this passage, so you come to it thinking I'm not going to find anything really new here. But I saw something in this passage in preparation that I, I at least had never seen before. One of the errors that you make when you come to this chapter is, especially with regard to the prodigal, you, you go there and, and you look and you focus upon the prodigal son. And that whole story that our Lord Jesus tells there, we, we focus on the prodigal and we talk about the prodigal son. It's the, it's the parable of the prodigal son. But the truth is that it's not one lost son in that parable, two lost sons. They're both lost. The prodigal is away. He's certainly lost. Of that, there's no doubt. 
But it becomes clear when the prodigal returns that there's a problem with the one that has stayed at home. He also is lost. Now, he is, he is not away. He's still there close to the Father, but there's a problem with him. He will not enter into the joy of the salvation of the prodigal, of his brother. He won't enter into that. There's, there's a coldness in his heart. And of course, that, that individual, that son, reflects those that our Lord Jesus is addressing. The Pharisees, the scribes, who look with criticism upon those who have gone into the world and lived a wicked lifestyle and imagine themselves distinct, not in need of grace. So as I thought of that, I realized, okay, so there are two lost sons. I, I know that. That wasn't new to me. But I was thinking about, well, one is, one is lost one is lost in the world, and the other is lost at home. They're both lost. And then this is what struck me, that the, the, the two that precede it are, are really the, the, those two distinctions. The first one of the sheep is the one that's lost in the world. He's away. He's gone out. He's lost in the wilderness. And then you have the woman searching for the lost coin. She's at home. She stays at home, but she's still, there's still something lost in the home. There's that which is lost. And I don't know, I'm looking at it this way, I'm coming to this chapter looking at it this way, that really then when you come to the, the third one, you have the pulling together of the previous two. You have that which is lost in the world and that which is lost at home, which applies to the two categories that the Lord Jesus is constantly addressing. The, the publicans and the sinners, those that are in the world, those that have gone away from religious life, those that are not in the synagogue, those that don't go to the temple, those that are rejected by their communities, but then those that are at home, those that still are in the synagogue, those that worship in the synagogue, those that go to Jerusalem three times a year and engage in all the religious work, and still, they are still lost. Our Lord then is in the business of reaching the lost. And so as we look at verses 3 through 7, this first part of the parable that is given, we're considering it under this title, Christ Searching for Sinners in the World. Christ Searching for Sinners in the World. And we're going to look at it very simply. Again, some of what we will say tonight would have overlap with verses 8 through 10. We'll try to look at that a little differently next time with the Lord's help. But, but we'll, we'll see certain things here. And the focus, the focus of the passage, as is true of all of the Gospels, the, the, the leading character is Christ. What does it say about Jesus Christ? There's a lot we can say that it says about men, and we'll see some of that. But don't get your eyes off what it says about the shepherd. So let us first consider tonight his purpose his purpose. Verse 4, as he tells the parable, he begins, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Now, one of the dangers when you come to any parable is that you start to draw out things that aren't in the parable, and that's a danger, and I can fall prey to it. Uh, one of the worst illustrations of this I have ever seen was someone making a case for polygamy from the parable of the ten virgins. 
the parable of the ten virgins, it, that's, it, has, a, it has a primary meaning, right? And it's not dealing with aspects of, of marriage and so on. It has a primary meaning. So when you come to any parable, never lose sight of the primary meaning. What is our Lord getting across? But here we're told he goes after that which is lost in verse 4. This is the purpose of the shepherd. Our Lord Jesus Christ goes after that which is lost. As we know that last time he has been criticized by the Pharisees for fellowshipping with notorious sinners and tax collectors. And it's hard to grasp. Well, maybe it's not. I was going to say it's hard to grasp just how despised these people are. But it may do us well just to think, are there people in society we despise? that we simply cannot look at. In fact, we despise them so much, it would, it would be a struggle for us to imagine them getting saved or finding any joy in their salvation. Now, are there exceedingly wicked people in this world? Yes. Are there people when you find out what they're guilty of, there's some urge in you that cries out for justice? and longs that they might be dealt with. And the prayer goes up. Do you not behold it, O God? Look at the injustice. And yet, such people are not beyond saving. Remember that. Remember that. The Jews could not stand for a moment, one of their own, taking money from them for the Roman Empire, for their enemies. God saves notorious sinners. He does it all the time. Often we don't know just how bad people have been. But God does, and He still saves them. One, one I just mentioned this as an aside, and I've, I think I've referred to it before, but one of such individual that we do, if we just stop and take in what the Scripture tells us about what He did, and then see that God saved them, one of those that boggles the mind is, is Manasseh. Go, go and read the life of Manasseh. Read both accounts. Read what it says in Kings. Read what it says in Chronicles. Read that man's life and ask, ask yourself if, if there was someone like that leading the nation today and supporting, encouraging, promoting the murder of children, burning them onto a false god, could you have it in you to imagine they could ever be saved? Our Lord Jesus goes after that which is lost. And all men are lost. And so no matter who He saves, equally lost, equally sinners, like I say, some are engaged in more heinous sins than others. But all are lost because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the prophet Ezekiel speaks of the Lord Jesus, of the Messiah to come, and prophetically gives insight into what he will be about. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. 
I'll read it to you. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. This is what he does. I will seek out my sheep. That's what he, that's what he prophesies. This is what God is going to do. I will seek out my sheep. And the Messiah comes. This is exactly what he gives himself to. Seeking out sheep. Sheep that are lost. They're all lost. So you find him in his life. It's glorious. Seeing him moving from place to place. Sometimes it comes into real kind of clear view. You see just how he's pursuing. Think of John 4 where that woman, that notorious sinner, the woman of Samaria, and it says, I must needs go through Samaria. I have to go that way. Why? I have a sheep there. A notorious woman, guilty of vile sin. She is despised by her community, used and abused by her community. And I'm going after her. Think of what it says. In fact, go to it. The Luke chapter 8, just to, to point out to you again with the, the man of the Gadarenes, the demoniac. Luke chapter 8. I can't read it all, but I'll read the kind of the opening and closing language of what happens here and make assumption that you know the details, but Luke 8, 26, they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. So they've come across the water. They've, they've gone through a storm. They've come all this way to the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And he meets the demoniac. He is saved. He is converted. He is changed, transformed. You go to verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear, and he went up into the ship and returned back again. Going through the storm, getting to the other side, was for what? For one man. For, for the demoniac that was there. For this individual that is described and looking at, in fact, we know there were two there, but, but he, he's going after these despised, rejected, cast out individuals that are lost. Lost. As lost as could be. And he gets them in his sights. And he goes through the storm and over to the other side and then changes their life. And then he's asked to depart. And off he goes, away. It was all for the sheep. So this is the purpose. He goes after that which is lost. Our Lord Jesus is in this business going after that which is lost. He goes after you. He goes after you. If you're not saved, He goes after you. Those of us who are saved, we can testify to it. He came after me. He came after me. Praise God. He came after me. This is His purpose then. Going after that which is lost. Put your name there. Put it. If you're not saved, I want you, 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 you to write it in there. Go after Put your name. You just put your name. That which is lost, take those four words and just stick in your name. The Lord Jesus goes after the lost. He goes after people just like you. But note also his perseverance. Verse 4. 
ends until he find it. Until he find it. As he depicts the scene here of one going after a lost sheep, he gives the idea of perseverance that he won't give up until it is found. Now, if Christ did not persevere in his work, if the shepherd doesn't persevere in going after the sheep, there's no hope. Right? The, the, the implication is the sheep's not coming back. The shepherd has to find it. That's the only way. The Bible describes us like sheep. In many ways, we are described as sheep, both positively and sometimes negatively. For example, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That, that's us. Like sheep, we've gone astray. And, and part of our problem living in our kind of city lifestyle is that we forget what sheep are like. Now, I didn't grow up in a city. I grew, in a grew up in a town that was surrounded by livestock and fields. I could walk half a mile, three quarters of a mile out my front door, and I would be outside the town in the fields in agrarian life. And in that area, things have to be well fenced. Farmers tend to take good care of their property because there's a lot of traffic in those areas. But sometimes you go a little farther out. You go into areas that perhaps there's, there's less traffic or maybe it's just harder to fence in, as sometimes is the case. Or, I don't mean... <laughs> I don't mean anything too, too much from this, but certainly you'll find, you'll find a distinct difference. This is just as an aside. Generally in Northern Ireland, where you have maybe predominantly more Protestant farmers, and I, you won't see sheep getting out too much. You go to the south of Ireland immediately, it's almost instant. You cross the border and the sheep are just like... <laughs> Just like the, the road's just part of their territory. You'll find them all over the place. It's, it's very noticeable. I, I don't know if anything's changed. But certainly that is something you always note. You drive south to the south of Ireland, the sheep, they're just kind of finding their way all over the place. But that's in their nature. That is in their nature. It's to stray. To stray away. To go to the one place you don't want them to go. To find a way to get to a place that is dangerous for them. They have all this space. The pasture's out there. They're, you look out to the road and you think, really, is there anything appealing out there? Why do you want to go out there? All the pasture's in there. Why would you leave? Why would you go out? But they do. And so there's no hope. There is no hope. Except the shepherd keeps going, persevering until he finds him. Now you think of what the Lord Jesus persevered through because when you look at this verse and it says until he find it and we apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ that he keeps going after the lost sheep until he finds it. I want you to step back and not think in terms of individuals. I want you to step back and think of the whole picture, the whole picture of our Lord Jesus persevering in this path. I want you to think of the perseverance necessary for him to come into this world. I want you to think of the 30 years of perseverance in a state of humiliation. I want you to think of the three years thereabouts where he takes up his ministry and is maligned, misunderstood, attacked. Every name that could be called him is called him, said to him, said about him. And he keeps going through every difficulty, through all the hardship, through the rejection 
when his heart is bleeding for sinners and they misunderstand and they go away, he doesn't stop. He keeps going. When he turns to his disciples on that occasion in John chapter 6 when thousands are gathered around him and he starts speaking about what it means to really believe in him and they go away, from that point many of them turned back and walked no more with him. He turns to his disciples and says, will ye also go away? But none of it will discourage him. None of it will stop him. He is going to keep going on. And so he goes and endures perseveringly the agony of Gethsemane, the mockery of the Jewish court, the injustice of Pilate's treatment, the anguish of the cross, the darkness of death. Why? Why? Until he find it. Until the work is done. Until... The grounds for them to be saved is established. He perseveres. No one has ever persevered like Jesus. Why? To find and save lost sinners. It's marvelous. You think of how easily you give up Think of how easily young people switch courses, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. Think of how easily people lose, you know, lose interest in a job or in work or employment and they go somewhere else. It gets a little tough. Think of all the ways that people avoid pain and suffering. How little stickability and perseverance is often on display today. If the Son of God had the characteristics often on display in most today, there's no salvation for any of us. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed or how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. He keeps going. He keeps going. He perseveres. And he finds them until he finds them. It's wonderful. <laughs> he finds them. What does he do? Remember what Hannah said? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. Lifteth the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. He finds them and he... What wonderful things he does for lost sheep. He perseveres. Some of you might think that you have outsinned his perseverance. And you've shelved the hope of heaven I hope that's not true. You're here tonight. He is still pursuing. He perseveres. Thirdly, his practice. What does he do? Verse 5. When he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. I ah, see there's, there's something here. There's something here. You know, why does he pick up the sheep? 
When he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. Why does, why does he pick up the sheep? Well, I think all sorts of reasons could be given, but chances are, as often is the case, not thinking too much or reading too much into this because it's just the reality, when you eventually find that sheep, often they need to be picked up. They are found in all sorts of conditions. Think of it in just two simple ways. He takes them out of snares. Many a time when the shepherd will find the sheep, he will find it caught in a snare, caught in briars. He has to untangle the sheep all the while, all the while he's going in there into the briars. And his own hands and his arms and his face are being cut up and scratched as he tries to untangle this creature out of where it's gotten itself into. The Bible even speaks of this in Genesis 22 when it speaks of Abraham turning and there's a ram caught in a thicket. That's in their nature. Happens all of the time. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons that he needs to pick it up is because he finds it in a place where it needs to be lifted. It's in a snare. It's in the briars. The briars, by the way, in Scripture, they speak of the curse. And so this is the sinner, if we illustrate this more fully, this is the sinner, often with the sheep caught in the briars. It's just the sinner caught under the weight and power of the curse. Addictions, habits, sins. And they're all caught up and they can't get released. They're entangled. They're ensnared. Oh, they never thought that first drink would lead to entanglement, but it did. I never thought that marijuana progressing to ecstasy, progressing to, to amphetamines, progressing to whatever it might be. I never thought there would be that progression. And they get entangled. Oh, how many start so innocently? Just, just stepping out into the world. That's what the sheep does. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going out here. Just going to see what's on the other side. And they wander. They get, a, they get a nose for the world. There's a new scent. Never smelt that before. And they start, start making inquiries and going into that area, finding out what that's all about. Here's new sounds. Never heard that before. It's in the middle of the, in the pastures, there where the shepherd would want me to stay, I don't hear these sounds, but I've, They've moved out and they're hearing you say, what's that sound? And you follow the ears, you follow the smells, you, what you hear, what you smell, what you maybe begin to taste and it leads you. And before you know it, you are ensnared in the thorns of this world and you can't get out. But not only does he take them from snares, he takes them from Satan. He lifts them up in part because he may find them in a very, even more, in even more imminent danger. I was thinking about what is true of David, who often illustrates much that is true about our Lord Jesus. You'll remember in 1 Samuel 17, I turned to that last week, but I'll not turn there tonight, but in verse 34 to 35, when David says unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. When he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Now Christ does no less than David. 
Of that there is no doubt. He does no less than David. And sometimes when he finds a sheep that is lost, what does he find? He finds them in the very mouth of the enemy. He's just about to clamp down. He's just about to end their existence, destroy them irrecoverably. Christ finds them and he, he rescues them. Oh, some of you know it. You look back, you look back at the very moment, that, the, that, that moment that Christ stepped into your life and you think, wow, wow, I was just about to go in this direction. I had this decision. I was about to go here. If that had come to pass as I was intending, if God had not stepped into my life at that moment, I'd have been lost. I can certainly say that. There are a number of things. A number, a number of things that happened in the 12 months leading up to my conversion. And any one of them, I look back and say, if that had happened, obviously, God's not restricted. But I look at what direction my life would have gone in. And the fact that it would have taken me away from the circumstances that put me under the Word and under the influence of those who were going on with God. I feel like I just was taken out of Satan's grasp. He was just about to just have me entirely. So this is his practice. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Isn't that great? What a picture of salvation. He doesn't say, he doesn't come like a drill sergeant and say, get up onto your feet, soldier, you know. And God, he doesn't come up with orders that the way home is your work, at least in part. I've found you, now make your way home. No, no, bless his name, no. He takes us, he lifts us up, he places us on his shoulders and he carries us the whole way home. That's what he's doing now, you know. I know you're battling, I know you feel yourself fighting in this world. But you're not really fighting that much. I mean, you're fighting insofar as he is letting you. You know, you're swatting off a few flies that are buzzing around your head while he carries you on his shoulders. That's kind of what you're going through. Now, it feels like more than that, but you have no idea. You have no idea just how much he's carrying you through. He's keeping you. Oh, don't, don't. Don't underestimate just how much he is doing. Don't imagine that, oh Lord, why haven't you done more? Begin to count your blessings and note what he is doing, what he has done. So this is his practice. He'll do it for you. He'll pick you up. He will. Fourthly, his possession. You read into verse 6. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. He calls them here. There's a few other things we'll note in just a moment. But he calls them, I have found my sheep which was lost. He takes ownership. Now, I said at the start, you have to be careful when you read the parables because sometimes you read into them things that you're not meant to. It's not the point. And so, for example, you have it in verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, 
You start take, you know, asking yourself, well, does that mean that Jesus can lose his sheep? Can he? Can he lose one that's his? Aside from other things we could say, when you, when you, when you pull Scripture together, you realize that it cannot be saying that. Can the Lord lose one of his own? No. No, John 6, 37, you know it well. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. All that the Father gives will come. And him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. On into verse 39, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. I'm going to lose nothing. Nothing. It's not going to be lost. It can't be. It cannot be. He's not going to lose any. They're his. They belong to him. And that makes all the difference. The shepherd knows the sheep that are his. You know, the mind boggles when you think of, of those that struggle with definite atonement, right? We talk about definite atonement. What we're talking about is that when Christ laid down his life, he had a definite people in mind. And I know some trip over this, and there are verses that due to, let's say, just a lack of awareness, you're not able to in interpret that truth in light, of, in light of the text. You struggle with it. If it's a definite people, what does it mean? Not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. I'm not going to get into 1 John 2, verse 2 right now. But it stands to reason. Shepherds know their own sheep. And there's a particular number of the flock. And he knows what he is doing. He is serving them. Always serving them. He's not in the business of stealing other sheep. Of going after sheep that don't belong to him. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he explicitly says in that passage, that you're not my sheep. As he pointed to some of them. You're not. So it can't be all. It has to be a specific number. I know people struggle with this, but it's the only thing that makes sense. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me. My Father which gave them me. What's he giving? An indefinite number? What's he giving? All the world into his hand? Then there's universalism. They all have to be saved. But he's not. He's giving a people. He has to be giving a people into his hand, and so no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Why? Why? Because none that he has given me can be lost. It is impossible. So, the house then, the house then will be filled. If you go back to the previous chapter, Luke 14 when it says that parable of the great supper and verse 23 the lord said unto the servant go out unto the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled keep going you keep going you don't know who they are right you're going out some of you you go out you go into your workplace you go into your neighborhood and your community you go into other forms of ministry and you speak for the lord jesus christ you don't know who the lord's going to see that's why you just keep you keep fishing you just keep fishing because you never know you never know. If you've ever pointed a soul to Christ, the first thing that strikes you, the first time you ever point a soul to Christ is you get taken aback. You were not prepared for it. You just weren't expecting it. It's like, huh? 
hang on a minute here. Because you, you, you were doing what you've always been doing. Saying the same words. Casting the same net. Praying the same prayer. And all of a sudden, this, there's ripe fruit. That's right there. Ready for the picking. And you never know. You never know. Sometimes you can see little signs of it. Sometimes. That's, that's certainly the case. I've seen that as well. But often you, you're just taken aback. And so, so what, in light of that, in light of, the, of the, the fact that often you're surprised, what, what do you do? You just keep going. You keep sowing the seed. And you keep casting the net. And you keep speaking the word. And you keep communicating the gospel. And you, and you just you find your place of ministry. And keep giving out the gospel. Why? Because there are, there are people. There are people that Christ has shed his blood for, a people that are going to be gathered in, and they're his. They belong to him. He takes ownership of them. I have found my sheep which was lost. Yes, he has found them. He has found you. He has found me. And when you, when you come in, you just realize that it had to be from all eternity. He set his love on me. Why else? It wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't in me. No, no, no. I was, I was the sheep that was out there in the world, entangled with the snares of, that was result from the curse and the fall. Satan had me in his grasp. Hopeless. Hopeless case. No way. I am making my way. Couldn't even bleat for help. Which brings us finally to his pleasure. His pleasure. What's his pleasure? Verse 6. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Like, like, let me just stop for a moment in that last line, because you're reading that and you're asking yourself some questions perhaps. What does that mean? Are there people that don't need to repent? Or is he referring to the religious, religious leaders who will not repent? What? Who are the 99 that he left? And Lenski speaks, uh, I think, insightfully here. He says, How can Jesus add more than over 99 righteous, such as do not have need of repentance? That's how he translates it. The key is given in more than, if you look at the text, more than over 99. That's where the key is with its plain implication that there will be joy in heaven also over the ninety-nine righteous as well as over the sinner. And the man with the hundred sheep certainly has two joys, one over the many that did not stray away, over the fact as it is vividly brought home to him by the straying sheep, and then joy over the one sheep that has been recovered after having strayed. So he's finding joy in both more than he's there is a heightened sense of joy because this one, also who had gone away, also then has been recovered. That's how Lenski understands it. I think there's, there's merit to that interpretation. But before we leave tonight, looking at this, this pleasure the Lord has, all that He has gone through, all that He has... I, I wish we could see this more clearly. I wish... We would take time to meditate on this more so that we get into our bones. That our Lord Jesus looks at the cause, the humiliation, the suffering, 
the imputation of our sin and the guilt and the shame and the agony of the cross and the darkness of it and the abandonment of the Father. And he looks at all of that. He, he sees all that is ahead of him. And he has something beyond the shadows of that. He sees something beyond that that, that he finds great delight in and is motivating him to keep going. Now, I say that advisedly, that the humanity of Jesus Christ is motivated by a joy. It is motivated by a joy. I, and I, we've been talking about divine impassibility. God doesn't fluctuate in his feelings. But the humanity, the humanity of Jesus Christ that does feel, without sin, feels things that we feel. There's something beyond that is fills him with the expectation of joy. And so no matter what, no matter the suffering necessary, no matter what it entails, whatever the will of the Father is, he is going to keep on going because the joy, the joy is a motivating factor. Now I say that because there is a legitimate, a legitimate way of understanding how to live the Christian life that sometimes I think gets framed as if well, that sounds kind of mercenary-like. When, when, when the Lord says that what will be said to the faithful, well done, thou good and faithful. Well done. Th think of that. God is greeting you with well done. some way that the Lord Jesus will pronounce well done as I am faithful to the cause. Beloved, there's, there has to be, we, we have to have the scales removed and see a joy in that. Well done. That I could ever do anything that he looks at and says well done. How can that be? How can it be? And so we, we, we kind of, we have to latch on to those things. We have to see through the hardship, through the trial, through the impossibilities, that which feels impossible to us, through, through all the pain and the suffering and the agony and the uncertainty and the, oh, how life can crush us. And we see beyond. And it, it motivates. It motivates. And the fact that he says, well done, should then be a joy to us and motivates us to keep going on and doing what we're called to do. Now, our Lord Jesus, I say all that because our Lord Jesus, he finds pleasure in this work despite the hardship and the suffering that goes beyond anything we will ever experience. Put us all together. Put all of our combined hardships together. Mix them all up and look at it and say, how could anyone bear that? Christ bore that infinitely. And yet, he goes out into the wilderness. He finds his lost sheep and there is something motivating him. When he cometh home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. I think this is great. He finds joy in this. It, it, it's not you rejoice. I, I, I think so, that's how some read it. You rejoice because I've done this. 
That's not what it says. I say that because when you go, and we'll, we'll get to it, but verse 10, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. How many times in my life, I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. How many times in my life have I sat in a prayer meeting and someone has prayed meaningfully, sincerely, I get it. I don't want to be too critical, but it's a pet peeve. It is. I'm acknowledging it. It's a pet peeve. I have them. We all have pet peeves. This is one of mine. Where they're praying about the joy of the angels. Lord, may the angels rejoice tonight. And I think to myself, okay, it's not wrong. It's not that it's wrong. But it just kind of, it's like, they're a supporting role. They're not the main, they're not the main character. Rejoice with me. Someone's already rejoicing. Someone's, someone's coming in, coming home and going down the neighborhood and saying, Rejoice with me. The smiles are already on their face. They're already filled with joy. And this is none other than Christ. He is the one who leads in joy. He is the one that is excited about the fact that you, a poor, wretched, fallen sinner, and he bore your sin upon himself. He is rejoicing in your redemption. And when the expression of your repentance, when you cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner, there's joy. Another one. Another one brought in. This is great. Some of you have lived a long time without meaningful joy. I mean, you have, you have moments of happiness and things have happened in your life. But ask yourself, have you had real joy? Real joy. I want to tell you, I want to tell you that this night you can have a joy that does not compare. It is a joy of sins forgiven. It's a joy of entering into the joy of Jesus Christ. It's coming to him in faith and repentance and seeing not a scowling Savior, but one with a smile. Oh, how he smiles. His light, his face beams with joy <laughs> because you've come to him. It's great. Why would you stay away? Why? And he invites all heaven There will be joy in heaven that Christ initiates. A long time ago, I think I preached in Zephaniah 3.17 about the Lord will joy over thee with singing. And I spoke of Christ as the great choir master. I said, Brother Overly, in heaven you'll be, you'll find you'll have another job. <laughs> There'll be something else for you to do because Christ will be He'll be leading in the choir of heaven. He will. Leading in the praises of his people. Joy, rejoice with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. Let me say to God's people here, not interested in wading into the political realm. But every time there's an election, I see everyone else's responses and I think that's, that's going to be where some of the people are going to be. Some of the flock are going to be right there. Disappointment, fear. I want you to, I want you to realize that 
that as far as I'm aware, never once did heaven ever have songs initiated because someone was elected into office in this failing world. Never once was there an initiation of joy because a particular football team won the Super Bowl. Never once was joy called for in heaven because of whatever you say makes you tick, like whatever it is. Sports, politics, the arts, the things you stand and give ovations for. Heaven's not giving an ovation. It's just watching on, seeing it all, maybe wondering, why, why, why are they so moved by this? <laughs> what is wrong with these people? You know. A ball crosses a line, touchdown, everyone cheers, 80,000, 90,000 people, and angels are looking at going, really? Like, really? <laughs> I'm not saying this to, to be critical of all sport, whatever, but I, I, I want you, I want you, I want you to have a balance. I want to ask yourself, how much effort and energy do you give to the effort of seeking to win souls in the fashion of your Savior, Jesus Christ? This brings him joy. One sinner repents, heaven erupts in praise. Why don't you give yourself to that? This one text guided our lives. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. If that, it's like, because joy is brought to heaven over one sinner that repenteth, and I am motivated by what brings heaven joy, and specifically Christ, I'm going to give my life to that as much as I am able. Now, Lord, help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, dear child of God, there is... I wish I could communicate it better. I wish I felt it more in my own life. What really should be our joy? pursuing sinners, preaching the gospel. Going after, going after the people around us, naming them in prayer, looking for an opportunity, handing out tracts, literature, talking to them, inviting them, This, this, this is a real profitable business. To those of you tonight that are not saved, it's time, it is time. Come on now. Jesus is seeking after you. Repent. Confess your sins and believe in him.
Lord, we pray that Thou wilt bless Thy Word. We thank Thee for it. This portion, the things that we can draw from it, the encouragement it gives to our hearts, the direction that it points us in. Oh, may our lives live under the dominating influence of passages like this. When we are brought to despair over our sin, help us to lift up our eyes, look unto Jesus who seeks the lost, who lays hold upon His people and none of them will perish. And when we look at a perishing world and the extent of sin that is all around us, when we look at family members that are falling more deeply and giving themselves more fully to all sorts of sin. May we plead for the shepherd to go on a rescue mission. Oh Lord Jesus, even tonight, go on a rescue mission after souls in this place and even after the souls that are on the hearts of thy people tonight. Bless us. Receive our thanks for this day, for the strengthening influence of thy precious word the joy of gathering with thy, thy people. We rejoice in thy mercies to us and being with us in this house. And bless the fellowship after and go with us into this week. Dear God, give us opportunities to speak of Jesus. Oh, we would love to taste more of the soul winner's wine. Grant it to us all. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.